I'm Tom Chick. I am here with Christian Molzowski. I'd like to be known as Emily, Faith, or Claudia. <laughs> Dingus later, tell us what that's from. Uh, okay. And with a, a quote about screams, probably, that he looked up or Googled or whatever, Kelly Wand. Ah! <laughs> now, Kelly Wand, do the scream that people do like when they get shot or when they fall in a synopsis. Wah! Yeah. <laughs> It's it's kind of like your your Wilhelm scream. Yeah. My what? The Wilhelm scream. What do you mean how it ugh, don't get me started. Anytime a movie does a Wilhelm scream, I'm out. I'm like, I hate the movie now. Movies are Oh Wilhelm, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh all right, but let's talk about legitimate screams, but before we do (laughs) Kelly Wand, what's a movie you've seen recently? <clears throat> uh, I watched uh, Half a Parasite, but we should talk about that later. But I watched, so I didn't know I had that option, so instead I watched Annabelle Comes Home on the plane yesterday. <laughs> and I hadn't seen any of the other Annabelle movies. And uh, I just want to say, A, okay, so it's three teenage girls versus Annabelle. And I wasn't right. familiar with Annabelle's powers, so that was the exciting part of it. Like, oh, what's that? <laughs> she just sit there and leer at you? Uh-huh. And she does. She just disappears when camera's not working or whatever. But I just want to say, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are in it as the right. psychic couple. I hate those fucking characters. I think they're annoying and their powers never work consistently and they like never know when there's ghosts behind them half the time. But they're, they're part of the verse. That's the whole like uh, Annabelle conjuring whatever verse, right? They put, keep her in a glass cabinet with a sign on it that says, don't open this, and people are always opening it. Right. And the reason that, that Annabelle gets loose is because a teenage girl's there who's not even supposed to be there, and she finds the key to the basement and goes in and tries to talk to her dead dad by letting Annabelle out. <laughs> Why don't you just talk to the couple? Bad writing. <laughs> wow. And it wasn't home. That's not coming home. Okay, I'm sorry. Annabelle Comes Home, that's my movie. <laughs> but wasn't isn't it a prequel to an Annabelle? Like, where does it fit in with the other Annabelle movies? I don't know. I tried to watch Annabelle Begins, and I was having trouble getting into it. Yeah. So the, it was kind of the Phantom Menace of Annabelle. But I wanted to watch The Nun, and you, t- you talked me out of being dumb. But now I kind of want to see if... The Nun's part of that same verse, right? Are Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson in The Nun? Yeah, the Conjuring verse. And Is she, there the, one? Vera Farmiga character just died in RL, so then it was dedicated to her. Annabelle Gums Holmes for Legacy. Okay, what? Uh, is there one that has Vera Farmiga, <laughs> Patrick Wilson, and Lynn Shay? No, Lynn Shay's not technically. It's a James Wan, that one other guy, his name I can't remember, verse, but she's in the Insidious universe, and Patrick Wilson uh, gets possessed of that. But not with Vera Farmiga. Haha, you know all this stuff. Look at you. (laughs) And they all suck, too. I'm not even recommending anything I just talked about. Make Dingus, which, if we were to make Dingus watch one, actually, Dingus, you've seen Conjuring. You're good, right? Yeah. 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 All right, so Annabelle comes home. Kelly Wand, how does. Yep. 
Go ahead. Just about Annabelle comes home. I forgot to mention that there's a guy that likes the he's the grocery store cashier and he likes the blonde girl who's babysitting one of the other girls. Mm-hmm. I forget why Patrick Wilson drew from her in the house, but he comes and serenades them because uh, Annabelle tells him that rock and roll is women, and it's not even rock and roll. He sings like a ballad from the 1830s or something. Wait, Annabelle is talking to to him? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. What does Annabelle sound like? Like, I'm imagining Mercedes... uh, It might not have been Annabelle, actually. I might have that part along. Well, Kelly Wan, now you should see the reboot of... uh, You should see the reboot of Child's Play. They're not scary, dolls. Well, yeah, but if you're doing, like, doll horror movies... Are you scared of dolls? I know you're scared of certain things that are strange. I, I grew out of that fear and uh, grew into other fears. So no, dolls the don't scare scary, me anymore. The only scary doll was the one in Twilight Zone because Telly Savalas tried to saw its head off with a chainsaw and it ignored it. And it kept coming back wherever he threw it away. So it was definitely more powerful. Actually, Kelly, when I would argue that the Zuni dolls in Trilogy of Terror that, that chase Karen Black, they're still freaky. Uh, and, and Fats from Magic is still freaky. <laughs> He's not really alive, though. Mm. We you could have this that question, is it? Right. Oh, yeah, no, he, he's not. But there is that one weird scene where they, they that uh, Richard Attenborough left in there. Wait, Atten- who directed that? I think it is uh, Richard Attenborough, right? Oliver Stone. No, get out of here. All right, well, Dingus, what's a movie that you saw this week? Preferably not about a scary doll. Uh, this is not about a scary doll. Mm-hmm. has some scary teddy bears in it, though. Um, and I'm afraid I probably liked this movie by contrast, uh, but I still uh, was a sucker for it uh, because I've been watching more romantic comedies lately. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, this isn't really a romantic comedy per se. It's more of a weird family comedy. Um, but it's uh, a movie called Instant Family. Did either of you see that? That would be impossible to imagine either of you seeing that. What What about it would we have responded to to make us watch it? Is someone famous that we like in it? Rose Byrne is in it. Ooh. But, um, <laughs> but so is Mark Wahlberg. Eh. Okay, now Less it kind of breaks so. even. <laughs> Does he but, get her in the movie? Why can't you just be happy for him? Um, he is married to her in the movie. And they play, and they play, yeah, I know it does, doesn't it? Um, They play a couple who uh, basically make their living by flipping houses, uh, by buying rundown houses, fixing them up, and then selling them for more than they bought them. Um, And they're doing quite well for themselves. And at one point, they're talking to her sister who is desperately trying to get pregnant with, uh, along with her husband, along with his help and IV and whatnot. Um, And they suddenly decide, you know what? We should really look into foster parenting, Uh, this being Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne. So they do so, and they get into the system of foster parenting, and they get into this class a parent of people who want to be prospective foster parents. And the class is taught by Octavia Spencer and Tig Notaro, who are <laughs> hilarious with each other. Um, and I always forget that 
as much as I love Tignataro as a comedian, oh. she's got such good comic timing and translates so well as an actress. Not all comedians oh. can do that. Dingus, uh, I want to propose something to you because she she freaks me out. Every single moment that Jane Lynch has ever appeared on screen, she should be replaced by Tignataro. <laughs> I, why would she say that? Jane Lynch. Jane Lynch freaks me out. She's scary. I'm I'm, I'm scared of her. I'm uh, not scared of dolls anymore, but I'm scared right. of Jane Lynch Jane and Lynch. ghosts that open their mouths really big. All right. So the more the supernatural. The more. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they get convinced to that uh, when you're um, fostering kids uh, with the uh, intent to buy or to adopt them, that it's best to consider. Um, if they have siblings to take the siblings as well. And while uh, Roseburn and Mark Wahlberg weren't prepared for this, when they find out that this, uh, they go to the, one of these weird, which apparently is a real thing. One of these weird picnic fairs where you sort of pick out children where the children like play at the fair and you sidle up next to them and get to know them. And Mark Wahlberg says something like, this is one time we get to just watch and talk to kids in the park without getting arrested. Um, and the, uh, classic Wahlberg, the social, the caseworkers say, Oh, the, the, the teenagers are over there on the steps. Nobody ever pays attention to them because nobody wants a teenager. Um, and they end up, actually falling for one of the teenagers and it turns out she has two younger siblings and so they foster all three of them and hilarity ensues and also a lot of uh heart tugging stuff that i really kind of loved uh, i mean the movie goes a little too far sometimes in its zaniness or its quest to be zany i think it takes a little too many steps over the line but by and large, it's just a touching movie, and I was really in the mood for such a thing uh, over the holidays. Um, the movie that contrasts it, what my uh, name gag comes from, is a movie that uh, Tom and Alexandra were talking about called A Simple Favor. Um, did you see the movie, Tom? You did, didn't you? Wait, what is that? Oh, no, that's so, the thing with uh, with um, Blake Lively and... And Anna, Ken Anna, Anna Kendrick. Kendrick. No, I didn't. I want to. Okay. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you think of it because uh, it tries for this it tries for this sort of heightened almost surreal sensibility in a way I mean Blake Lively's really good in it but she's she kind of becomes a little one notey and it kind of fizzles out for me anyway um, I think there are a lot of things a lot of opportunities that they miss in the movie uh, but Anna Kendrick is just so freaking winning um, that you really can't you can't resist her so basically uh, Dingus you're kind of saying that Blake Lively doesn't register for you no she <laughs> registers I just don't think she gets she gets to do one thing and one thing only essentially um, and she, and it reminded me a little bit of uh, down with love only to the extent of it seems to be going for a certain concept and going just a l little over it and they make um, basically the same kind of martinis right okay well I am betting that what I saw is longer than both of your movies combined and you could even throw simple favor in into the mix as well dingus oh wow I I watched a three and a half hour movie that I didn't realize was three and a half hours 
until about an hour in it, and I looked to see how much was left, and I was like, oh, my God. This is also a recent movie. It just came out. It's by a famous director. It's got an incredible cast, but it's one of those movies that don't be three and a half hours. But when Martin Scorsese gets a deal with Netflix and $150 million, he's going to make his movie as long as he wants. So he makes The Irishman three and a half hours long. Oh. Uh, So how much do you guys know about The Irishman? The new Scorsese thing. I know very little. All right. What were you saying, Kelly? You, you, you did or didn't see it? I haven't seen it yet. I really want to see it. I'll see I mean, it you should, we should you, – you guys should see it. it. It's definitely worth seeing, and that's my main takeaway. Uh, and I'll explain in a minute why I think you need to see it. And, should and, we podcast about it? Uh, I guess we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are. Uh, but but first, I do want to say three and a half hours long, it, it's not it, – it really shouldn't have been that long. It really was an example of Scorsese not having to deal with – uh, with, with theaters and, and theater times, you know, put it on Netflix and be as long as you want. Right. I, I almost feel at times like it kind of wanted to be a, a, a mini series. Um, mm. So it, it's about a fella named uh, Frank Sheeran who, and here's kind of the funny part, and I think Scorsese doesn't care, uh, and Steve Zalian who wrote, wrote the script, who, who, it's, a, it's a solid script, but they adapted it from a kind of a lurid sensationalist crime book based on a guy who claimed that, hey, I'm the one that killed Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, okay. And the guy was full of shit. The guy did not kill Jimmy Hoffa. He probably never killed anyone. There's a great article that, that Slate published about a month ago uh, saying, you know, this this source material for this movie is just – it doesn't hold any water. And and I think that one of the cool things about the movie is it doesn't care. This is This could be a fictional account of a guy's relationship to Jimmy Hoffa. So Robert De Niro is our main character. Uh, in a really weird casting choice that I think ultimately kind of works, Al Pacino is Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, and it's about as Jimmy Hoffa starts to get in trouble with the mafia that was responsible for – that was partly was helpful for propping him up with the Teamsters Union. Uh, Robert De Niro, as his, as his friend, Frank Sheeran as his friend, has to decide – do I stick with him or do I stick with the, the mafia where I come from? And it's Robert De Niro doing his uh, kind of loyal uh, attack dog role where mm-hmm. he, he uh, he's, he's very subservient to uh, uh, Al uh, Pacino on one side as uh, Jimmy Hoffa. But the other side of the equation representing the, mo- the mob, I want to talk about in a second because that's the second reason you need to see it. Um, so the – one thing that's screwy, because it's three and a half hours long, it tries to span, as you can imagine, decades of time. So we've got De Niro playing his current age. We've got De Niro playing maybe 10, 20 years from now. And the movie even wants us to have De Niro 20 years old. So there is a good hour and a half, hour 45 minutes of CG De Niro. <laughs> and boy, does it just, it's so uncomfortable looking. Uh. I got to see it soon, dude. Thank you. I'm excited, though. They also, because uh, uh, <laughs> Frank Sheeran had blue eyes, and I this dri- 
They give him, I don't know if they're contacts or if they're CG in his eyes. They give De Niro bright blue eyes and it just looks out of place. If they're contacts, it looks like they're very uncomfortable. If it's CG, it looks like it's not done very well. Um, That's how that character's supposed to look to you, though, man. I mean, you know, after the movie, I looked him up to see, well, were they trying? And otherwise, no, they didn't try to. It's not like Johnny Depp being uh, Whitey Bulger. Well, I was going to ask about that, yeah. I mean, that that was super distracting where he just looked like a vampire. Here, it's, hey, it's Robert De Niro, but for some reason, and he's got bright blue eyes that just look out of place. Um, oh, I can't wait, dude. I'm so excited now. So, okay, here are the two main reasons you good. need to see it. Uh, the main reason you need to see it, uh, I want you to think of Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. And I want you to think of the adjectives you would use to describe his character in Goodfellas. Like like brash and belligerent and outgoing and crass. Um, Shine box. And it's kind of how Joe Pesci, like his career, was playing that kind of character. Martin Scorsese, for some reason, Uh-oh. Joe Pesci is amazing. He's just he's he's heartbreakingly amazing in The Irishman as the other side of the equation that De Niro has to be loyal to. You know, he represents a mobster who got De Niro his start and then introduced him to Jimmy Hoffa. So the movie is about De Niro's loyalty torn between Jimmy Hoffa and this mobster played by Joe Pesci, who is his friend, his benefactor. He's, he's patient and wise. Uh, he's insightful. He's quiet. He observes. He's discerning. Uh, mm. But it's just an amazing Joe Pesci performance because it's unlike anything he's ever done, and it looks like he was born to play this role. Um, so that's the main reason to see it. Mm. The second reason to see it is, like, if this is the uh, culmination of Joe Pesci's career, I mean, it, Joe Pesci's been great in a lot of things, but he's just mesmerizing in this. It's amazing watching him in this. The other reason to see this, uh, Martin Scorsese has, of course, been through a long storied career, and you can imagine him beginning with Taxi Driver being sort of an angry young product of the 70s. And then he ends up doing Goodfellas. And Goodfellas is about a mobster in his heyday who's living it up, who got away with it, uh, who's made who, – who's escaped uh, doom. Like it's, it's about a guy just living in his heyday and just being joyous about it, even though he's gone through some terrible things. Now we fast forward to The Irishman. And The Irishman is a story about – and this is, I think, where Martin Scorsese is – a guy looking back at his life – with uh, it's it's this mobster setting, but instead of having that Goodfellas feel or casino, it's got the feel of a guy looking back on his life and questioning everything he has done and wondering if it was the right thing. Uh, oh. It's like an end life crisis, uh, and it's really poignant. Um, so three and a half hours. I know that's a that's a big ask, but because of I think how it's unique from. It has a very different tone from Scorsese's other mob movies, and specifically because Joe Pesci is freaking amazing in it, uh, I recommend Irishman. Does it encourage you through its through the way it's made? Because the thing I've heard about it is that it that you feel it, but does it encourage you to watch it in one sitting, or do you feel like I gotta I gotta take a break? Um, I that's a very good question, Dingus, because a lot of I actually ended up watching it in one sitting. Uh, and I don't think it was when I checked to see how long it was because I knew it was a longer movie. I was like, ah, oh, two hours, forty-five minutes, and it was longer than that. When I checked to see how long it was after I'd started playing it, and I thought, oh god, this is so long. 
I never thought that again. Like it then uh. pulled me through the rest of it. Um, and, and and to Scorsese's credit, you know, he's a solid filmmaker. He knows how to keep things moving. He knows pacing. He knows like it, it's not an inept or a two. It's an indulgent three and a half hours, but it's a guy who knows how to earn that kind of indulgence, I guess. And uh. yeah, I did watch it all in one sitting. Uh, and I think that does help. Partly it helps Dingus because there's a lot of cutting back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like you would watch Act 1, then Act 2, then Act 3. It's it's of a piece. There's a kind of a narrative structure uh, that 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 uh, begins the reminiscence. It's basically a road Godfather trip. Two, kind of. um, I don't remember The Godfather 2 well enough. It goes back to De Niro as a young Vito and then to the Cuba stuff with Pacino. Oh, oh, right, but but this is uh, the, the structure for Irishman is these two characters are on a road trip, and on the road trip they flash back and then flash forward. It's a guy remembering this road trip, and the road trip is kind of the connective tissue of the movie. Um, uh, is there um, a good deal of narration in it? Oh my God, I I can't help every time I hear this I think of Brian Cox and adaptation, screaming and God help you if you rely on your voiceovers. <laughs> Um, there is so much voiceover, and I don't, I don't know. Oh no! I mean, I, normally I hear that, and I'm like, why are you doing so much telling, not showing? But the thing is, yeah. it sets it up early why it's there. And De Niro, you know, he's he's just good enough. I mean, he can do it, but it is so full of voiceover. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, good, Goodfellas is too, and it shifts between couple characters exception that proves the rule yeah yeah um and and it, you know i of course he knows how to do his voiceover i, I guess okay. I, should, I shouldn't right. be too hard on it yeah all right so all right uh oh and and one so nobody knows what happened to jimmy hoffa of course that's not a, a spoiler that this movie does present something that happens to jimmy hoffa uh the actual moment where we find out what happened to jimmy hoffa is so weirdly shot that uh like i don't know if it's an accident or if scorsese meant it to be that way or if he used that take but it is so like oh that's what you're gonna tell me happened it's just so weird uh so for that too just to hang in there for that moment uh because i i'm just surprised he did it that way um so elections got awesome vo too now think about it so forget what i said <laughs> okay kelly wand all right let's then talk about this month's three by three which is what dingus screams all right what inspired um, this topic yeah dingus what got taken off the table I don't think anything got taken off the table. Yeah, it did. I tried to grief you by telling you it couldn't be horror movies. No, you mentioned Samara Weaving. Oh, that's right. Um, her almost, uh, I forget, tribal scream that becomes more and more tribal in um, Ready or Not. And it's just such a great scream as she's coming into her own and becoming a more powerful figure in that movie. Uh, and it's just so odd. It's just so odd that it ripples up your spine. Well, there goes my number one. Great. Oh, Ugh. sorry. All no. right. I'm redoing my list then, so I'll go first because I'm introducing next month's 3 by 3 So I want to tell you guys about uh, a really obscure movie. Uh, it, it's obscure, but it, it got some film festival attention. It's from a couple of years ago. Uh, it actually won the Grand Jury Award at South by Southwest uh, two years ago. Uh, have you, has either of you heard of a movie called Most Beautiful Island? No. 
And there's no yeah. reason you would have. Uh, one of the cool things about it, and I didn't realize this till it was over, it is written and directed and starring a woman named Anna Asensio. She wrote this, she directed it, and she's the lead actress. And it doesn't at all feel like a vanity project. Like, I never would have known that watching it. And the first half of Most Beautiful Island, the first 45 minutes, whatever. Yeah, first half. Um, you're watching a movie about an immigrant in New York City trying to make a living, trying to get along. And she's a single mother. She's having a hard time getting work. Uh, we, she's there illegally. Uh and there's a moment where she's just sitting in an apartment and she writes on a piece of paper, most beautiful island, and folds it into a paper airplane and throws it out the window. That's the only reference to the title. So halfway through this movie, she goes to meet uh, another friend of hers who she meets for coffee every now and then named Olga, who's a, a Russian immigrant, super hot chick, who obviously is maybe involved in some shady business to make money. Uh, in this movie, uh, the actress plays a woman named Lu uh, uh, Luciana. Luciana hasn't had to be a prostitute or do any escorting or anything. She's been above board, whereas Olga seems okay with that kind of work. So they're having coffee and they're chatting and they're laughing and they're obviously good friends. And Olga says, hey, you know what? I have a gig tonight that I can't make. Why don't you fill in for me? Because it pays really well. And Luciana's like, no, I don't want to do the kind of work you do. I'm not comfortable doing that. And Olga says, no, no, it's not like that. You don't have to do anything. Just put on a black cocktail dress, uh, high heels, uh, and, I, and you need to pick up something at this address, and they're going to pay you. And I forget what the sum is, but it's like a good sum of money that she could really use. And Olga says, and you don't have to sleep with anyone. You're basically just going to be at a party. Nothing, nothing uh, sketchy. So Luciana thinks about it, and she trusts Olga. She's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So she gets a cocktail dress, which isn't easy for her to do because that's not something she's used to having. She gets some high heels. And then she goes to this address, and the address is just like some dumpy Chinese food restaurant, and she's led down to the basement, and there's a guy down there who gives her a purse with a lock on it, like a padlock that you can't open it, and he says, okay, take this and go to this address, and don't bring anything else with you, no cell phones, no clothes, no one goes with you, go alone, and she's starting to get red flags, like it's starting to, she's not really clear what, she's starting to maybe doubt that she shouldn't be doing this. But she needs the money. So in just the cocktail dress, the high heels, and this purse that she doesn't know what's in it, she goes to this other address. And it looks like an abandoned warehouse. Like there's no one there. Because she's expecting it's going to be like a party. So <clears throat> she looks around a little bit and then realizes, okay, there's, there's some people in the basement. She goes down to the basement. And there are these kind of thuggish men in suits who seem to be expecting her. And they lead her into a room where there are maybe eight, nine other women in cocktail dresses, all standing in uh, people. Someone has drawn a, a chalk circle big enough for one person to stand in. And each woman is standing in her own chalk circle. And there's a number by each chalk circle. And one of the men leads her to her own chalk circle. She's number five. And tells her to stand there and won't answer any questions. And what's worse <clears throat> is she sees in one of the other chalk circles her friend Olga, who now won't make eye contact with her. Yeah. And there's a very tense atmosphere. The women are, are nervous. They're uncertain. There's even a sense that they're leery of each other. There seems to be a sense that some of them, that they kind of know what they're here for, way more than Luciana knows. They won't talk to her. If she tries to talk the men in the room, tell them to stop talking. So they stand there for a little bit. 
and then a door where you can't it opens such that you can't see what's on the other side a door opens and this beautiful older stately woman like imagine a, a monica bellucci comes out and looks over all of them and she has this sort of imperious attitude of a, of a madame or like a wicked witch or something and she she reminds them okay girls smile and look pretty <laughs> and then she opens the door, and now all these people in uh, – men and women in suits and cocktail dresses. They're obviously like rich people dressed up. They come in, and they look over the women, and they're just kind of looking at them, surveying them like maybe there's going to be an auction or something. And they look over them, and then they're led back out into the whatever's on the other side of that door. And the, the Monica Bellucci-looking woman leaves with them. And the girls are sitting there. Luciana has no idea what this is. And at this point in the movie, you're thinking, okay, I kind of know what's going on. I, I, I have a guess what's going to be going on. There's going to be like a snuff film or it is a prostitute. I, I know what's going on here. So the, the woman comes back, and she, she picks one of the girls. She says, she says, you were asked for. And she leads the girl past that door. And the other women are left alone while the girl is there. And after a period of time, there's a very polite applause from the other room and the girl emerges really shaken uh i mean she's not hurt but she's shaken she goes to one of the suited men he gives her an envelope full of money and she leaves and then the madam comes back in and she says they have asked for you and she picks another woman not luciana not olga and then the other woman gets let out the door and now after a short pause the other woman's been in there a little bit there is a scream and that's where I'm going to leave you guys with this cool movie called Most Beautiful Island that really did surprise me when it finally revealed what's on the other side of that door. There's no mystery here. There's a definite thing happening, but I did not expect what was there. And I love that about that movie, and I love the implications that that scream carry with it because the woman who screams never comes out the door. <laughs> huh. All right, there's my third favorite scream. I will not be fielding questions, but I do recommend a movie called Most Beautiful Island. Uh, Ana, Ancien, uh, Ana Asiencio, uh, Spanish director, actress, uh, writer, uh, does a fantastic job with it. And it's it's one of those movies where it, if, if it can stick the ending, which it does, the mystery is worth it. So Can't say that about many movies, actually. I mean, that's a hard thing for a movie to do. It's yeah. easy for a movie to imply, hey, something's freaky and scary. But right. when it comes time to lift the curtain, you're like, oh, right. Uh, but this movie, I, it surprised me. All right, Kelly Wand, I need to know your third favorite scream. My number three favorite scream, I really like uh, Veronica Cartwright's scream in Alien at the very end. Because um, if you – when I saw it, I didn't know there was going to be an Aliens – so I thought, oh, this is the last thing Ripley hears from another human voice, and it's Rucka Cartwright, and she's listening. Ripley's listening to her in the garage get killed by the alien, like you don't even see it. And Veronica Cartwright screams like she knows which character she is in Alien. She's so <laughs> annoying. She spent the whole movie going, "Fuck this alien! Why are we doing this?" And she hates it. She's hating her being in Alien. And then at the end, and there's also a part where she's like, kind of. Here, I'll try and do Veronica Cartwright's scream. Ah! <laughs> 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 
she does a little kind of gaspy thing, like, oh, shit. And then you kind of picture what she's saying. She sounds really annoyed. Well, it is. I mean, it is a scream where uh, in Ridley Scott, no, he just leaves it to you to imagine what is making her have these reactions. Yeah. Yeah. It's so involved. It's like a novel told in a scream. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Very solid. That's a very solid one, Kelly One. So far, you haven't done a terrible job with this list. Uh, I had to, it's a, I had, it was a great topic, and I had to squeeze a lot of things out that are really good. All right, well, we'll hear so. about those in the runners-up. Uh, Dingus, mm-hmm. third favorite screen. Okay, here's a couple quotes from it. Not to 50, that is the sound of ultimate suffering. And uh, this is from a movie called The Princess Bride. And um, the scream comes from The Man in Black played by Carrie Elways, and was brought forth by Prince Humperdinck, uh, Chris Randon, who, in a fit of peak, cranks Count Rugen's machine. It's just called the machine, up to 50. And what the machine does is it sucks X amount of years from your life, and that's part of his experiment to see what happens if I just suck a year out of your life. And Prince Humperdinck just comes storming into his little laboratory and he's really angry because the uh, princess buttercup has told him, you know, you can marry me if you want, but I'll never love you. And he is so enraged that he goes down and he says, you'll suffer as no man has suffered. And he cranks the machine up to 50, which uh, takes 50 years out of this man's life. And the scream that and Carrie always, of course, is hooked up to this fictional machine and he he arches his back and is and he just howls and screams to the point where um, Inigo Montoya and uh, everybody in the surrounding kingdom can hear it. And what's hilarious about it is that Inigo Montoya immediately identifies what the scream is about and where it's coming from and who is who is doing the scream and that's how they find the man in black and he he says no he says my heart made that noise the day my father died uh and so he recognizes this amazing scream that is the sound of ultimate suffering that when he hears the man in black do it uh, Carrie, Carrie always put those skills to use in this in the first Saw movie as well, Dingus. Ah, very good. A lot of screaming in that. He didn't even have to audition. He just sent in a tape of Princess Bride. Exactly, yeah. that's. I, I, I think that's why he was cast in that. They saw Princess Bride. I think you're right. Uh, Uh-oh. Dingus, Kelly Wan might be pulling you over. He, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> no, that's cool. All right. I like it. Sport it. My second favorite scream, again, I think this is a movie you guys haven't seen. Uh, there's an English director named Peter Strickland. Uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen a movie called In Fabric? No, I like that title. It's for you. It's totally for you. I just watched it tonight because – so Peter Strickland's uh, – I think it's his first movie. Um, it's a movie with Toby Jones called Barbarian Sound Studio. Now, not Barbarian, not like Conan. Barbarian which I don't even know what it references because I don't think there's a place called this, but it's a sound studio in Italy in the 70s, 
where they're they're putting together a, a 70s Italian horror movie. And they have hired as their sound editor an Englishman who just is flown in to work on this 70s Italian horror movie. And I Toby Jones. Heard, I've actually heard of Barbarian Sound Studio. Because I remember somebody saying that same thing, not Barbarian. Oh, wait, I've seen this. It's good. <laughs> I just remember it. Oh, you, you have seen it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, well, well, the cool thing oh, is, so yeah, yeah. Peter Strickland is a very visual filmmaker, uh, but he's also uh, very aural. There's a lot of great sound stuff that he plays with, as you can imagine in a movie about a sound studio. Um, and one of the amazing things about Barbarian Sound Studio, which is kind of a, a descent into madness psychological horror movie that gets really weird and trippy and kind of meta by the time it's over. Um, and Toby Jones is just this buttoned-up proper Englishman who doesn't quite know what to make of these these bullying Italian guys who are making a horror movie. Uh, and the horror movie, we never see it. Instead, we see people watching it while they're editing the sound. <laughs> And, 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 and so we, we know what's on the screen by what we hear, by how Toby Jones reacts, by mm. the name of the scene being mentioned, but what will I cue up the reel? Um, there will be a, a breakdown, like on a, a grid that describes the scenes. So we have to picture in our head what is being shown. And the point of the movie is the impact this has on Toby Jones who is, didn't realize he was doing a horror movie. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so my favorite scream in this, because as you can imagine, there's a lot, a lot of screaming. Um, and, and some of the scenes, like, uh, you, there's a scene, uh, uh, the scenes are called things like, Monica gets thrown out the window, or um, uh, a witch is tortured by having her hair pulled out, or... Uh, <laughs> Even in a sorry to get gross here. Even a, a hot poker is inserted inside woman's vagina. Like it, like horrible. I mean, and, and and Peter Strickland knows just how horrific these things are, and he doesn't show us any of them. He just tells us, yeah, this is what Toby Jones is having to look at. This is the stuff in this movie. So naturally, part of the sound recording they're doing, there's sound effects, and you can imagine just a lot of stuff with taking a machete to fruit or ripping lettuce apart, um, banging on things, putting water in a sizzling pan to represent, like, the poker on skin. Um, so there's a lot of stuff where you show sound effects, but then there are also people dubbing the dialogue. And there seems to be a stable of women who are partly kept because they're attractive, but also they're good at, at screaming, at doing the dialogue. So there will be scenes of these women in the sound booth doing screams. And one of the women, uh, Toby Jones starts to get a connection with her. Uh, she's different from the other one. She doesn't seem as frivolous. Uh, and she actually is, is curious about Toby Jones and what he's doing. And they strike up a friendship. Uh, and at a certain point in the movie, she comes in while he's working late, and she says, uh, I'd, I'd like... I'd like to do some work right now. Uh, and he says, oh, okay, what what scene, what, what reel do you want me to cue up? And she says, no, I, I, I just need to scream. And she goes in the booth, and you will know the scream when, when you see it because it's a, it's a significant part of the movie, and I think it's part of where things kind of change for Toby Jones. Uh, but when the actress comes in to 
because she just needs to scream. Uh, that scene right there uh, is my second favorite scream. Mm. Kelly Wan, so in Fabric, uh, you remember the, the tone of Barbarian Sound Studio? It's it's very like weird and sinister, right? Like it's it's clear it's a horror movie, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And his and Toby Jones' reaction, like he's surrounded by like nothing's right. It just feels he's way out of his element. Right, exactly, and they're not. It's always they're, dark somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in fabric is a. Uh, I think this is how the English would would say it. Peter Strickland is English. Uh, in fabric, I think he's what's called taking a piss, because <laughs> in fabric is so. I mean, it, it's got some of the cool, the same cool stylishness, but it's it's a comedy. Like, I, I, what are you doing, Peter Strickland? It is so ridiculously absurd and exaggerated that I – and by the time it's over, it's like, okay, you just made me watch a comedy. I didn't realize that's what I was signing up uh, for. You always hate it when your expectations are subverted. Like, yeah, oh, I, I really did think oh, Kelly Wan – no, I really did think of the difference between The Witch and The Lighthouse. I kind of felt the same way about right. Barbarian Sound Studio and In Fabric. So In Fabric, definitely for you. I feel like you need to loosen up and get a massage and chill well, a little bit. To be fair, I did like In Fabric better than The Lighthouse. I, I enjoyed In Fabric quite a bit, but it's not what I would have expected the director of Barbarian Sound Studio to do. I mean, if you hate a comedy, it's meaning it means you don't like the jokes in the movie. Like if it was like, oh, this is a great comedy, you would have said that. You Kelly Wand, I will concur with that statement as long as you make air quotes around the word jokes when you're talking about In Fabric. You'll see. What about Swiss Army Man? Uh, very similar. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, I would like in fabric. If yeah, Swiss Army Man had been a horror movie about a cursed dress, yes. When you hate a comedy, I always wind up loving it. I noticed. Yep. So well, this, the more you, yeah. I'm I look excited. forward to hearing your your uh, reaction to in fabric. Then I actually, yeah. I actually reject your premise, Kelly. That not liking a comedy means you didn't like the jokes. I, I reject really? that. Yeah, it's it has to do with pacing. It has to do with timing. It has to do not not only with the timing of the actors who are delivering, but I consider that all part of the joke, though. I'm I'm measuring that. No, it's where the jokes fall within it. It's not just about jokes. That's just I reject that. <laughs> Kelly, what? I don't that's think like we're actually disagreeing, actually. But all right. <laughs> you miss? Yeah. No, it's all. I misinterpreted you saying you don't like a comedy because you don't like the jokes. Well, and how they're told. Well, to Kelly Wan's point, I mean, the thing. Yeah, in in fabric is is a very Peter Strickland knows what he's doing. In fabric is a very well made movie, and the sense of humor in it, I just don't. It, you know what? It reminded me of Rubber, but I liked Rubber a lot because I think Quentin Dupieux understands this. uh, He understands absurdity in a way that appeals to me. Uh, I don't think Peter Strickland's understanding of absurdity really works for me in, in the same way. Oh, okay. So not necessarily jokes, but the sense of humor definitely didn't work for me in the way that I think it would work for Kelly Wand. Um, but 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 that's the thing, is to your point though, Dingus, I could look at this movie and, and all that stuff you're talking about, like the the, the, the pacing and uh, the, the visually in fabric is gorgeous, the cast knows what they're doing, all that stuff is on point. But I just, the sense of humor and absurdism, not my bag. Yeah. So. Okay. But you hate all absurdism. No, I don't. I love rubber. Uh, I, I like rubber quite a bit. <laughs> what did we see recently that was absurd that I really liked? I, I love absurdism, Kelly Wand. Doctor you... Sleep. 
Terminator. That would have been so much better if it had been Terminator. Yeah. All right. Second favorite Scream. Uh, Kelly Wand. What do you got for us? I really like the Scream and. Uh, maybe I should save that for number one, actually. Okay, my number two, then, is, is Bride of Frankenstein. Kelly Wan, your three-by-three three lists are living, breathing documents. <laughs> like a good scream is. Like Veronica Cartwright screams a living document. But, yeah, Bride of Frankenstein, like, she wakes up and she looks at him and she screams. We've all been on that date. But then I thought, while I was watching it, all she does is scream. She, like, turns her head like a chicken and then screams at the wall and i would have said to frankenstein's monster like look see she all that's just how she expresses herself i think when she sees her other options you'll look better so you should have just (laughs) kept going with it a little longer but it stays like ah this day's a disaster and he blew up the castle killed everybody including the date and i would have said you know they always scream at first Kelly Wan, how old is that movie? 1930. Ugh. Five. I think she's still alive. The Bride of Frankenstein. She's still screaming somewhere. It's good. Probably not. That might be. That's picture. <laughs> but if we bring her back, she'll probably scream because she'll remember doing it from making the movie. Uh, I'm not a, just as far as monsters go. So, if you rank the dumbest monsters, <laughs> the the bottom dumbest monster is always a mummy. The yes, next, the I next up dumbest, yeah, uh, the next up dumbest monster is a Frankenstein's monster. What about Creature from the Black Lagoon? No, that's way up there. Are you crazy? That's awesome. Mm, I feel like he's getting bad press. He's in the, he's a rare creature, and you should just play horror music. Kelly Wan, there's a reason that that, that you can't. Uh, he's unique. Like he's he's singular. There 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 haven't been so remakes of, of there haven't been know. remakes of Creature of the, the Black Lagoon. Nobody's trying to reboot it because you can't you can't improve on it. Or you just don't care anymore. <laughs> there yeah, could be right. that, yeah. Diana yeah. Rubber suit. We have Godzilla now. We don't need that guy. Uh, I recently he's watched – so uh, there's a fellow named Larry Fessenden who uh, – Kelly, if I ask you, do you know who Larry Fessenden is? You of all people need to say yes, right? It's the um, happy steward. What? No. Who was the guy on the plane who was happy all the time that we liked, that we watched? Something professional. From Bridesmaids? <laughs> Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Oh, Larry Fessenden. Oh, oh Larry Gay, about. renegade male flight attendant. That's what you're thinking yeah. of. Okay, uh, that's not that active thing. So Larry that's Fessenden that. is an, an indie filmmaker. <laughs> he does horror movies. He's done some terrible things recently. Uh, but I think he hit his stride again with a movie that he just did called Depraved, which just came out, <clears throat> and it's a latter-day Frankenstein story, uh, which, I, which I kind of liked. Um, I normally don't like those. I really liked the guy who plays the monster in it, too. Um, so, if you want to see a good Frankenstein... Oh, Maria Dizia is in it. Dingus, you know who Ooh. she is, right? Yeah, I like yeah. her a lot. Yeah, she's got a small part in it. Um, so, uh, Depraved. Uh, Dingus, second favorite scream in movies. He also plays the DJ in Southbound, by the way. Uh, Larry Fessenden. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, he's all over the place. I mean, see, Kelly Wand... Dingus even knows who Larry Fessenden is. What's your deal? I probably do. I just forgot. Uh, Larry Fessenden is one of the guys in the basement in Most Beautiful Island who gives the girl her money. Oh. So, so he's all over the place. I mean, he's in uh, Wendy and Lucy. Like if uh, – yeah, I love that guy. 
Okay, so I don't know who he is because none of those I've seen. If I were to show you him, you would probably go, oh, yeah, that guy, I've seen him. Yeah. Well, that's how I feel when I see anyone. <laughs> All right, so uh, what, he's, wait, been what, a, he's been in a ton of stuff. He's just got such a distinctive face and voice. And so well, is Larry Fessenden. <laughs> He's also uh, just a big supporter of independent filmmakers, yeah. Uh, yeah. being one himself. He's like one of the original indie filmmakers, uh, and yeah. And I, I, he's I our just... Paul Bartel. Kelly, one. How do you not know a movie called Wendigo? Yeah, Wendigo. Wendy and Lucy and Wendigo. I know, right? Well, he directed and wrote Wendigo. He's not in it, uh, but Wendigo is a great horror movie. Mm, yeah. Suspicious. Is it what? I don't think I know nothing. All right. That guy. I'll say that guy still. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, he looks kind of like a uh, – well, he, he's got a sort of a Jack Nicholson quality to him. Yeah, that's. Uh, I would go with that. Yeah, okay. Is he, does he play Jack in Dr. Sleep? Is it that guy? Uh, no. He's not it. Dr. Sleep would be beneath him. Uh, what lies beneath <laughs> Larry Fessenden? <laughs> he's Dr. Sleep. All right, is it my turn for number one? No, where are we? I've lost the track. It's my turn for number two. Dingus, and, second uh, favorite scream. Here's a quote from it. Is there a point? Or are you just brushing up on your small talk? Um, <laughs> so this is the scream that comes from Clarence Drop Johnson, played by Mario Tedisco. Uh, when he sees Eddie Dane, uh, played by J.E. Freeman, get hit in the head by a sh- fireplace shovel by Johnny Casper, Played by John Polito. Uh And this is in the movie Miller's Crossing. Uh, and this is the big gor- the gorilla, as the Dane puts it, after having been worked over by the Dane to try to get information out of him. And he's like, the Dane is a great, great character. Um, and when Tom shows up, not you, Tom. Jesus, uh, Tom. When Tom shows up, to uh, Casper's office, he says, uh, I usually like the big ones because they break easily, not like you, Tom. Um, but this one didn't break. And so Clarence Johnson, or Drop as he's known, uh, has laid this enormous bet, and they're trying to figure out, well, who'd you actually lay the bet for? But Tom knows who he laid the bet for. Um, and he's sitting over there near the fireplace, uh, just grasping his knees and when um tom has affected uh casper to uh think that the dane has double crossed him so badly that he smacks him in the head or in the face with a shovel a fireplace shovel but nonetheless a shovel and just destroys the man's face um this big galoot this gorilla over in the corner, sitting in this chair, grasping his knees, just starts to scream. And it just goes on and on and on. And part of it is that he knows what's actually happening. And part of it is having just had the pulp beat out of him. And part of it is the simple horror of watching what is unfolding before him. A man's face destroyed by a shovel and the unraveling of of his of this world that he thought he could rely upon you don't get that but he's it's just this sound of his soul and his grief and horror just pouring out of him and john polito does this 
father abusive father thing well where basically he says you know shut up or i'll give you something to howl about and he advances on him and he and tom ringan basically says you know he's not the problem he's created by blue point and he says then shut him up and tom just nods at him and the big guy the gorilla stops screaming until um the Dane struggles back up to his knees and uh, Casper goes back and says, as I tell all of my boys, always save one for the brain and shoots him in the back of the head. And then he resumes this unbearably loud scream that just fills and reverberates this beautiful space that is his office, that is Casper's office. Uh, and it just it just comes out of this enormous human being who must have an incredible lung capacity because it just goes on and on. I love that scream so freaking much. A uh, quick check around the table. Dingus current favorite Coen brothers movie. Miller's crossing. All right. Kelly wand current favorite Coen brothers movie. Serious man. What? No, you can't take my answer. Okay, I'm gonna go next. Serious man. Kelly Wand, current favorite <laughs> Cohen Brothers Raising movie. Arizona. Okay. Arizona. <laughs> really? Serious man, you would pick? Yeah. What else would I pick? Fargo? Come on. Mm, I don't know. I mean I you can't I didn't know I mean I know we like the same kinds of things. I just I you know what? I can't High think five of a Kelly Wand. Cohen Brothers movie. Maybe Bart I like Barton Fink a lot. Alright, I'm gonna put you down for Barton Fink. I thought you would pick that one with Brad Pitt being an exercise dude. I love that one. Burn after reading. That's the thing is Coen Brothers. I mean, there's there's so many that you love, but it's no like which it's like no which country. one like speaks to you. Like when you ask someone your favorite Coen Brothers movie, it can vary by time of day. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Right. So All right. of choices. What have they done lately? What the fuck are they? It's been a while. Uh, True Grit, and they did that uh, Buster Scroggs thing, which I still haven't day. seen. They went to uh, Netflix. Scorsese went to Netflix. Oh, the Ballad of Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I, w- yeah. I wonder if it's. Worth I love it. it. You haven't seen it, Tom? I... It's an anthology. Uh, I, don't, I watch. I don't want to watch an anthology. Wasn't that on Kelly's list? Really good. It was on my list. Yeah. yeah. I still defend yeah. that choice. All right, I'll watch it. And the jokes in it are really good. Anyway. I'll watch it when you watch Thelma. Oh, I, I promise I'll watch Thelma. I'm sure you will, Kelly Wand. Landing the plane. It's sure really great. I'm sure it's on Thelma the plane. Tully. Thelma and Tully. I got him on the list. <laughs> oh, right. Tully, Getting yeah. Get mixed up. Double feature. Five letter words with T. All right. Let's get down to our favorite screams. I think mine's super easy. I mean, I've talked about this movie before, specifically about the scream, because it's all about – and Brian De Palma, like it's so self-aware in terms of the criticisms of Brian De Palma, uh, the, the, the criticisms leveled at him about his violence towards women and that sort of thing, um, his misogyny – putatively uh but blowout begins with john travolta it begins you're watching a horror movie a, a, a rote slasher movie and the slasher is like stalking some women and then he comes across a woman in a shower and he pulls the curtain back and he's gonna kill her with a knife and she does this weak little scream and you realize oh we're watching the sound guys trying to dub in a good scream for this crappy horror movie and john travolta is the the sound guy and what follows is this this uh it's kind of Brian De Palma's more accessible, more on-the-nose version of Blow Up, the Antonioni uh, uh, photography movie, but using sound. 
so a uh, plot unfolds. John Lithgow's an evil killer. Uh, Karen, oh, no, Nancy Allen uh, is a woman he falls in love with, a uh, prostitute who protects, uh, and she eventually gets killed by John Lithgow while John Travolta is uh, is listening in. He's got a, a bug planted on them. And you find out at the end of the movie that he uses her dying scream for that slasher movie that they're that they're doing the sound for. Uh, and just so that scream as a bookend for Blowout, uh, I think, because the movie's all about like that's the character arc is all about creating that scream and then being shameless enough to exploit it. Uh, that makes it, him a bad boyfriend, my opinion. But well, a you good know, sound designer. The, sure, good sound designer. Yeah, it's making effective <laughs> use don't of. Don't date him. Or right. Use your screams for financial. Gain. The thing is, like, they're not boyfriend and girlfriend. Like, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. they. I, I forget. Do they kiss before she? Like, right before well, she? And and I've talked about this before. The movie's broken. It's dumb because Brian De Palma never explain. It's just got a. a a fatal flaw in the plotting where there's no reason for John Travolta to think that Nancy Allen is in danger based on what he hears. It's so stupid. I hate that about it. Um, but right before she goes to meet John Lithgow, I think they I think they might kiss. I could be wrong about that. But that's as close as it gets. Kelly Wan is mostly platonic. What about Body Double? That's a love affair, you say. Craig Watson and the screaming in that one? Yeah, it's a lot of screaming in DePaul. But Body Double, unlike Blowout, is not about the scream. Well, when I think of DePaul yeah. movies, I just think of women screaming. Mostly. Hmm, all right. And Michael Caine wearing uh, lipstick. That's the second thing. Right, yeah, same, sure. Yeah. Terrifying. Uh, Terrifying Dingus, Dingus thinks of, uh, of Kevin Costner. That's right, and De-, De Niro with a baseball bat. Oh, right, right, that's right, yeah. <laughs> all right, Kelly Wand, favorite scream in all of moviedom. What do you got? Uh, there was one that was my number one, but then I was like obsessed on, wait, is it the character screaming or the actor screaming? Because if you fully interrelated scream, does that count? So then I went, oh, I guess I'll do this other one then. So this is my number one favorite scream because it's the actor screaming. And it's, of course, the classic American Werewolf in London where – He's playing, he's just wandering around the house, like really bored. And, like He's reading a magazine, I think, and then he just starts screaming. It's a really good scream. It's like, it really hurts to become a werewolf. He's just screaming from pain, and nothing's even happening yet. It's a great cut. Right, and he's, then all the Rick Baker before... effects kick in, and you realize why he's screaming. Yeah. Right, but before the Rick Baker effects come in, his first reaction is to go from smiling, reading something, to just screaming in agony. And I've never seen werewolfism, lycanthropy, uh, <laughs> depicted as, like, that. I don't think he does that later when he changes into a werewolf. But maybe uh, we don't see any other transformations after that. Kelly, one interesting fact. Uh, third dumbest uh, monster after Mummy's Frankenstein monsters are uh, werewolves. Um... Yeah, That's werewolves scary. are dumb. You cannot name three good werewolf movies. It's uh, impossible to do. Okay, Teen Wolf. <laughs> See? Teen Wolf 2. Dingus is making the, the, the case for it. Okay, American Werewolf. Uh, the Howling. Um, the, have you watched The Howling recently? It's really goofy. Wolf with Jack Nicholson. I love Wolf with Jack Nicholson. I think that movie rules. That's two, in my opinion. 
The, the werewolves in that are so dumb. When they get to actually fighting at the end, you're going to tell me that's not dumb. The James Spader, Jack Nicholson, goofy wolves fighting each other? Dumb. It's dumb. good when he's at work, though, and he's peeing on his shoe. And, uh... yeah, the fact that the best scene in that movie is someone peeing on someone's shoe says a lot about werewolves. No, he becomes a better reader, too. <laughs> I like that. He loves being a werewolf. He gets a Michelle Pfeiffer. He's, he, hate, he divorces his stupid wife. It's great. Uh, the other the other good the werewolf, werewolf movie I I might allow for is Ginger Snaps. Mm. There's a lot of good ones. Nope, that's there aren't. Great one. And the only reason I'm challenging you to name three is because you don't know the third good werewolf movie because it's a super obscure. I think it's Danish. It's called When Animals Dream. Huh. Those are the Wait, only three what? good werewolf movies. Oh, so you've just done five. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's only three. I've debunked two American of them. Werewolf. Right? Wolf. Ginger snaps. No wolf Ginger is dumb. Snaps. Wolf the is dumb. Just said, wolf is dumb. Okay, so Wolfen doesn't hold up, by the way. Whitley, Whitley Stryber and Joe Dante. Super early stuff for them. Wolfen's not werewolves, though, so that doesn't count. That's the Gregory uh, Hines, Albert Finney thing. Right. That's different. Yeah. That's like Native American spirit dogs. <laughs> Their power, Tom, is climbing up buildings like Batman. Like, right? They can get in the top of a skyscraper. Right. But they just look like regular he, dogs with, with shiny eyes. yeah. And they're intelligent, in quotes, because right. at the end, Albert Finney smashes uh, some redevelopment. They're mad about real estate, like the poltergeist ghosts. And so Albert Finney wins over the Wolfen by smashing the architectural model, which the Wolfen go, oh, I guess that means you're not going to do it. But I right. would just go, if I was a Wolfen, wait, he's just smashing a model. It's, uh, it's, it's a parable about gentrification. <laughs> Do you remember who the uh, sort of the hot young Latino uh, actually I think he's supposed to, uh, no hot young like American Indian actor playing the one of the American Indian human forms of the Wolfen was? Is it the guy from Predator? No, he's super uh, famous now. So too. Oh, uh, Keanu Reeves. Uh, Edward James Olmos. <laughs> Uh, they're like we need we need to you're hispanic indian close enough we need you to play an american indian uh, yeah. the wolf and come out at night <laughs> right oh guys so say That's we all oh, almost all right dingus you pick this list you've obviously got a great number one pick what is the best scream in all of moviedom all right here's a quote uh well a bit of dialogue my nightmare i had it again last night Oh, that you're trapped inside a golden egg and you can't get out, and you're... thing is, when you put the name of the movie in the quote, it's too easy to guess. And you'll float all alone through space forever. No, it's not. The, uh, the, it's based on a book called The Golden Egg, so the movie ah. is, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's The Vanishing. Um, it's the one from 1988, of course. Uh, both that one and the American one are directed by the same guy, George. How do you say his last name? Sluzer? Uh, yeah, I don't. Just put in a European kind of twist on it, and it's probably correct. Sluzer. There you go. Exactly. All right. Um, I love this scream so much, uh, and I was kind of somewhere between this and um, and buried, but I. I appreciate the scream, which is done by a character named Rex Hoffman, um, played by uh, Jane Bervutz. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's caused essentially by him. 
and by Raymond Lamorne because he agrees, you know, his girlfriend has vanished um, three years previous and he's been obsessed with trying to find her. Uh, they, they're fighting about something he can't commit or whatever. They stop at a, at a gas station. He goes back to the car and she's just gone with, she's gone without a trace. And he puts up, he puts up posters. He puts up posters all over campus. Um, and I think, or I might be mixing it up with some of the things that happened in the American one. Um, but he can't find her. And eventually the guy responsible for her death just comes to him and says, um, I'm the guy you're looking for. There's no way to prove it, but, uh, you'll never find her without me or you'll never figure out what happened to her without me. And he is like, well, if you call the police, you'll never find out. If you kill me, you'll never find out. And he knows that the kid, the guy is obsessed with finding out what happened. And he says, Here's what I'll do. If you take this sleeping pill, if you take this sleeping drug, um, you will find out what happened to your girlfriend. You'll know exactly what happened to her. Uh, it's up to you. And he's and the guy says, "Okay, I'll I'll do that." And of course, he wakes up inside of a coffin buried underground. Um, he lights a little lighter, a little Bic lighter kind of a thing. And he realizes he's buried in a coffin and there's no way out of it. And his simultaneous horror at understanding that he will never get out of this and that this is how she died, that she never got out of it. And that ultimate just complete and total fear of that that tiny little space that represents just a bare wooden coffin um, causes these screams out of the man that are just heart wrenching. And I love the, the original version of that so much because the American version of course screws up the ending. And I remember seeing the vanishing in our local art house theater in college and just being so taken by how cruel the ending was and all of us leaving and just saying, I've never seen a movie that ended that cruelly. Um, and that's one of the things I kind of begrudgingly loved about it, even at the time uh, was just this, this feeling of, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to relent uh, because the killer. And again, I might be conflating the two characters, the American one and that one. Um, I'd said he, saved a, I think a little girl's life and he wanted to see if he could do the worst thing possible and if it would make him feel any better or any differently because he felt nothing he's a person who feels nothing he felt nothing by saving this girl's life and he wondered well if I do something horrible am I going to feel anything that way either and he's a regular old family guy uh, I mean, there's and this is something I don't remember. I don't know how well you remember the original, um, but I do remember it from the American remake. And I remember being taken by it, but I couldn't find a clip of it. Uh, and that's I think it's Jeff Bridges who plays the killer in the America one. Yeah, um, and he's doing and he's he's uh, gone on record as saying the goofy accent he's doing was him imitating uh, George Salusier, imitating the director's accent. 
it's terrible. Uh, uh, it's really distracting. But he does this thing where he's staying on a lake, and he, I think he he screams at the top of his lungs across the lake, basically just to test to see whether the nearest family would would hear if something horrible happens at his house. Well, he, in the in the original one, he uh, is up in at the cabin with his family. I don't think there's a lake, so that you might be thinking of the remake. Uh, yeah. And he has his daughter open a drawer full of spiders to scare her, so she'll scream. Uh, and then he, with his daughters and his wife, his whole family, they just are delightfully like screaming, like having fun, screaming. Oh. And he's doing it to see if people will hear it. Like he's it's it's some he's testing whether or not he'll. Anyone will hear Saskia buried in the coffin uh, by screaming with his family and his little uh, girls. It's it's just really weird when you realize why he's doing it, what he's setting up. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I love that name, Saskia, by the way. Um, you can understand a guy obsessing over her and trying to track her Joan just because her name is so cool. And also, um, yeah, just him calling her and like asking around for her. And yeah, yeah, it's a cool name to hear. Yeah. Uh, but that moment where he wakes up from the sleeping pill and realizes what he's gotten himself into, uh, you know, as a, you can't help but think, what did you think was going to happen? How did you think this was going to end well for you at all? Um, but he does have that moment in the movie where he's like, do I just let her go on? Maybe she went somewhere else. Do I just imagine that she's alive and just let her live? Or do I keep looking for her and do I take this chance? Uh, and that moment at the end is so gr so grossly beautiful to me. So that's my favorite scream. All right. Uh, what do the listeners have? All right. So Rhiannon McLean um, says that, Dear Tom, Christian, and Kelly Wan, scary noises are scarier than scary sights. Here are three scream scenes that scare me even to think about. Number three, Donald Sutherland reveals himself to be a pod person. Uh, number two, Judge Do Doom in New Framed Roger Rabbit reveals himself to be a tune. I sounded just like this. Um, number one, Bennings in The Thing reveals himself to be The Thing. Mm. That is a freaky one. Yeah. So uh, she says, scree, stretching out his finger through the three of you and greeting. Erks. Um, so next we have Sam Pinovich. Uh, hello, Dingus, Kelly, and Chick. Recently made the possibly lethal decision to collect physical movies again. So in order to justify all the sweet baby blues I've purchased, I will from this point forward only be selecting from my physical collection for three by threes. <laughs> Sam, you're just going to force yourself to have to buy a lot of movies now. <laughs> well, he says to continue reading if you find this acceptable. I find this acceptable. Miller's Crossing is indeed in my collection, as is The Princess Bride. Um, number three, in 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam brings us to the year 1996 and 1990 and like 2036 or something. And now there are lots and lots of screams in this dystopian time travel tale. Bruce Willis screams while drooling. Brad Pitt regularly winds himself up into a manic yell about whatever his warped mind can muster. But the most important scream in this movie is done by Madeline Stowe. 
who totally registered for Dingus, by the way. Uh, the anchor of the film is a dream memory Bruce has from his childhood to a time when his parents took him to visit an airport and he witnessed a man getting shot to death. We revisit the scene throughout the film, getting more and more context until we learn that the man getting shot is Bruce and the woman chasing after him screaming is Madeline Stowe. Yes. Uh, Sam's number two in Frankenhooker. I'm listening. <laughs> Jeffrey, an amateur inventor, scientist, and doctor, creates a remote control lawnmower for his future father in law. But while demonstrating said lawnmower, Jeffrey's fiance, um, Elizabeth, gets really dismembered. Heartbroken, Jeffrey is determined to bring his fiance back from the dead. But in order to do so, he needs the parts. So he goes to get some hookers but first creates a form of super crack for the hookers to smoke and slip into a long sleep. Once yeah. he finds a pimp to provide enough specimens, Jeffrey finds himself in a hotel room measuring breasts and asses. But one of the hookers finds the super crack and the fun begins early. Unfortunately, he made the crack too good. And with an amazing effect, all the hookers start to explode from the crack they smoked. Yeah. And ammonium breaks loose in the hotel room. And we see and hear the screams and explosions of a dozen hookers popping like pinatas full of MMA. Classic Mary Shelley. <laughs> um, uh-oh, Sam. Uh, number one in the Twin Peaks pl- pilot episode. Look, I know this isn't a movie, but I said I was choosing right from my collection. And by reading this far, you've agreed to afford me certain immunity. <laughs> so in the pilot episode, Lynch and Frost, seminal television series, we learn about the residents of Twin Peaks and their relation to the murdered homecoming queen, Laura Palmer. Um, he goes through the plot of Twin Peaks. Teacher explains that something has happened and the principal will soon make an announcement. But before he does, Don has already put the pieces together and breaks down into sobs. The principal then makes the tragic announcement, and this is punctuated by Donna's sobs turning into a scream, an unselling and emotional scene showing the devastation that Laura's death has caused. Love you guys, Sam. The end of uh, the new Twin Peaks ends with a really good Cheryl Lee scream. That's what I was thinking of, Kelly Wound, yeah. So why would you why would you go with the starting one, not the ending one? Hmm. It's one of her best screams. Thank huh. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, next, we have John Renninger. John Renninger types. I guess for first place, I have to pick Nancy Allen's scream from Blowout. Yes. The movie starts with the sound engineer, John Travolta, interviewing girls who can't give him the scream he wants. It's a spoiler that it ends with the tape of the real scream of the girl he couldn't save and that he can't stand to listen to it. Um, High five, oh, John I, Renninger. That's a I great pick. I almost picked this one, John. I like this one a lot, actually. Uh, but I picked this movie too much. I'm glad somebody picked it. Uh, I'm also picking Brooke Smith's Scream from Silence of the Lambs. As Catherine Martin, daughter of Senator Martin, she screams when seeing the broken-off fingernails of other girls that try to claw their way out of James Gum, uh, Ted Levine's Pit of Despair. His mo- mocking mimicry of her screams are all the more horrifying. <laughs> And that's one of the reasons I love this one, John, is because he's basically showing her in addition to just trying on her voice for size because he's trying to be her, um, that 
she can scream as loud as she wants to. Nobody's ever going to hear her. And he's, he matches her scream for scream. But her total horror at seeing those fingernails and her reaction. I mean, we all know, at least Tom and I know Brooke Smith is an incredible actress. Uh, and she just conveys that moment unbelievably. Kelly, are you with us on believing that Brooke Smith is a great actress? <laughs> you don't even know who she is. Well, I don't know. She sounds cool. Uh, John, finally for Variety, I'll pick John Marley's scream from The Godfather. It is the longest scream of the bunch from when movie producer Jack Voltz wakes to find his pride, prize horse's head in his bed. I love that. Ah! <laughs> that, was, that was your impression of it, Dingus? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Classic Waltz. <laughs> Um, let's see. That is the wrong one. So, uh, Mason has written in, uh, greetings quarter to three gang. I had to actually look up screams versus yells to make sure my choices were adhering to the Mm, law. Right. A scream has a higher pitch than a yell. This meant the first thing that came to me was clearly a scream. Number three, the 1999 movie Ravenous. There is a quick unsettling scene where an injured private toffler jeremy davis screams out into the night he was licking me when the lights <laughs> come on a wild eye colclon robert carlisle is backing away with blood on his lips Ooh. number two ben wheatley's 2013 film a field in england Ugh. He had me until he said a field in England. Ugh. Um, the jokes are good in that movie. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, one uh, for what it's worth, Ben Wheatley produced in Fabric. He was one of the producers of the uh, Peter Strickland thing. So you put that in your pipe and smoke it. it. Yeah. yeah. I was hoping that it was going to be like a high rise thing or or sightseers, but nope. He goes right to field in England, or not even free fire. <laughs> nope, field in England. Great. That's right. Tommy's sending out an SOS. Okay. <laughs> Um, he says, I haven't seen a field in England because Tom, because of Tom's no, reaction. Of course you haven't. Nobody has and nobody should. It's just... I saw it because of Tom's reaction and loved it. <laughs> and Tom's reaction. <laughs> but Mason says that a field in England has an extended and extremely horrific scream. O'Neill, the alchemist, Michael Smiley, takes <laughs> a... <laughs> I do like that guy. Why are you making trilling noises at him? He's cool. Yeah, I like him too. That's what oh. I, that's the sound I make when I like something. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were being facetious. Yeah, because he, he he goes way back with Ben Wheatley to that uh, Hitman movie they did, The Killing. What was that called? Tom, I it? give the reference you just made a. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ooh. All right. So uh, Michael Ooh. Smiley is an alchemist. Go on, Dingus. Um, takes his deserting uh, or. Disserting, uh, assistant Whitehead, Reese Shearsmith, into his tent and does something to Whitehead that causes him to scream and scream and scream. It really goes on for way too long. O'Neill emerges from the tent with Whitehead trussed up in front of him, acting like a human divining rod, and they set off running. Uh, again has good screams a little. Uh, Mason takes a break here to say thank you for finally doing a midsummer episode because the best scream is in it. Um, <laughs> but his number one. Oh, okay, it is this. Danny Florence Pugh 
has several screams in this, but the best scream she does is after witnessing Christian in his special ritual. Her scream as she collapses in the sleeping hall is so full of the compounded grief, frustration, and anger that it seems she will never recover. Then it is absorbed, echoed, and amplified by the group of young women supporting her. As they take in her grief, you can feel it pass from Danny to the women, then off into the ether. In the end, Danny is still screaming, but she looks emptied, and she is now sharing that weight with those around her. Hmm. And Mason thanks us for making one of his favorite podcasts. I don't know what podcast he's referring to, but he thanks us for that. Midsummer. I do want to report in on the Florence Pugh front. Uh, I took one for the team, and I watched like her first main movie. She was in something that Stephen Merchant wrote and directed called Fighting With My Family. Does either of you know this movie? No. How is it? Dwayne Johnson's one of the producers on it, so Ooh. it's got that going for it. It's a movie – Fairy Reunion. It's a movie about – yeah, exactly, Kelly Wand, exactly. But it's a movie about wrestling. And it's so dumb. And here's the thing. It, it's terrible, and you'd never know from, from – she's the lead in it. She plays a, a, a young lady whose family just loves wrestling. They watch it, and she wrestles with her brother, and they revere wrestlers, and they live in Norwich, England, whatever that is. And so she gets picked up to like go on a wrestling tour in America or some dumb thing like that. And it's about her becoming like a real wrestler – and it becomes like heartwarming and it's full of dumb jokes and Dwayne Johnson has a cameo. But you would never know from this stupid movie that Florence Pugh is amazing. Um, and then she's got like dark hair and she's supposed to be she's supposed to be like all goth and the whole joke is that she's ugly. Because all the what? other lady wrestlers are like hot blonde models and stuff and they make fun of her for being ugly. And the way that they make Florence Pugh ugly, they put a lot of eyeliner on her. <laughs> uh, terrific i mean it's revolting you can barely look at her oh that exists to make girls eyes look worse <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's one reason i realized too why i hated it once it was over and it, it shows it, it, you then realize this is about a real person I'd, I'd been tricked into watching a stupid biopic about a lady wrestler oh no Ugh. well glow has a lot more characters that glow is roller derbies. No, it's wrestling, bro. Ugh. <laughs> lady wrestlers. I just the Jewish don't... ones are really good. Our, yeah. our friend Chris Webb is into wrestling. I just don't get it. I don't get anyone who cares or thinks... Ugh. What is the deal? It's dumb. <laughs> Fourth worst monster, a wrestler. Mummies, Frankenstein monsters, werewolves, anybody who's a professional wrestler. Fourth dumbest Chris monster. Chris Webb's into wrestling? Yeah. Interesting. I'd have to hear his dissertation on it to understand. I mean, but I, I do would... like the one and only with Henry Winkler as a wrestler. That's actually a really good. Well, I like that. the. Re- I mean, we all like the wrestler, but that's yeah, not about wrestling too. necessarily. You don't have to like. Yeah. We like fictional wrestling in movies. We just right. don't like actually watching. Wrestling. Or biopics. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. I so, Florence I Pugh. I'm now. I've now seen more Florence Pugh movies than anyone on this podcast. The wrestling in Rushmore is great. Oh, oh, see, that's not – that's the thing is that's real re- – that's, that's what gets me, Dingus. Wrestling is a real thing. Why is yeah. there a fake one also? Ugh. Yeah. 
my uh, relatives in Pennsylvania, they central Pennsylvania, in a coal mining town. Um, they really resented the fact that I loved playing basketball for my school, uh, which was not in their town, um, because when they were coming up, the basketball team basically took all the funds that would have helped the wrestling team. And so they would always make fun of basketball players and call them round ball players because that was an ultimate insult to them. <laughs> round ball? Yeah. Is an insult? I guess. Ah, uh-huh, your ball's round. <laughs> yep. Um, hey, so, what? What do you guys think of Harlem Globetrotters games? Does that count as like fake sports? Yeah, speaking of fake, yeah. Of course it's fake. What? When I was seven, I was totally like, oh, my God, they won. <laughs> and I was like, the other team really sucks. And now I'm thinking, the other team had actually the harder job. You know what I mean? Straight man? Um, yes, someone. Do you know who the other team was? That's the thing. It was like the white people from Cincinnati or something. They're the Washington Generals. And they always lost. Harlem, Washington's a pretty bitter rivalry, I guess. Yeah, it is. So, best screams going forward. We have Soren Hoogland. Uh Hi, guys. I decided to keep it nonverbal for this one, so sadly, I had to exclude Gary Oldman in the professional. Because <laughs> that's that's yelling. Like, there's yelling and hollering, but screaming is a yeah is a nonverbal. That's more like shrieking, huh? Yeah. Uh, so I, I had a little trouble with this with Miller's Crossing because he is – the dialogue refers to him as uh, – Casper refers to him as shut your hollering. But the script uh, – the action in the script talks about him screaming. So I went Well, that's it. the thing is I think you can make words – hollering can be – and yelling. Like you make – yelling implies words. I think hollering can apply imply words or just the sound. I think screaming is just the sound. Right? Yeah, like, that's what I think. Generally, yeah. Shut up, Kelly screamed at Tom. Well, otherwise, no, you yell is a perfectly good word for that. Yell never means, like, if a, 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 somebody reacting to a box full of spiders, you don't, that's not a yell, that's a scream. I think scream noun is different from scream verb. Who's with me? Um, <laughs> yes, I'm with that you there. I'm with you there, um, but but that's the thing about the English language, Kelly. One is every single word can be a n- verb. No. You're welcome, other languages. <laughs> We've already covered this. Yep, penis penis cannot be verb. Yes, it can. Don't make me use it in a sentence. I will. Kelly, one use Cover penis in a sentence. A yeah, <laughs> penis is a verb though too. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So, what does Soren Hoagland have that involves words? Number three that doesn't involve words. Oh, right, right. The correct way to do it, right. Yes, nonverbal. Number three, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Donald Uh, Sutherland's scream at the end. It's been memed to death, but it's still great. Uh, Number two, a movie called Possession. The infamous subway scene. Any of Isabel Ajani's screams as the miscarriage happens would qualify, but I think she saves the best for the last. And Soren's number one, look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you've got a spiral fracture to the left radius. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Uh, 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 nice guys? Yeah. Ah! 
I love so, this bit. Ryan Gosling's scream as Russell Crowe breaks his arm in The Nice Guys. It never fails to make me laugh. Also, I love the way Gosling barks now during the scene. <laughs> me leaving it out of the best no 3x3 three three was a gross oversight. Um, next we have... You're welcome, Russell Crowe. <laughs> Hendrick. Hendrick says, hi, Kelly and Dingus. Tom. Number three, Sheb Woolley voicing the last moments of a man getting eaten by an alligator in Distant Drums from 1951. A scream so remarkable will ruin your suspension of disbelief in every movie it is used in because we heard it a hundred times before. This is, of course, the Wilhelm scream. Pretty great. Uh, Dingus arrest, two. Henrik. <laughs> I won't do it. Hendrix number two. Damon Wayans and I'm going to get you, sucker, from 1988. Screaming like a woman auditioning for the role of Scream Queen when he gets pressed against a wall by a waitress turned demoned by her period. Such a stupid movie, but a great scream. <laughs> Someone dies of gold chain overdose in that movie. <laughs> and uh, Hendrix number one, Tony Collette in Hereditary from 2018. Screaming on all fours after learning what happened to the utility pole. Way too close to comfort <laughs> as it doesn't sound like a standard Hollywood cry of sadness. No! More like a deep, almost animal-like roar of anguish and loss. Terrifyingly good. It is kind of interesting how that moment uh, is... The Midsummer opens with almost that same exact moment, uh, with, with Florence Pugh discovering what happens to her loved ones. Uh, but whereas Midsummer is about that scream transitioning to the communal thing that uh, I forget it, Sam, whoever brought up Midsummer before, uh, talks about. Like like Midsummer is almost about that scream kind of being redeemed or fulfilled or done a different way. Uh, but yeah, it's the same thing because. Tony Collette, like, and the abrupt cut to that, to her screaming too, which is played over that horrific image with the ants on the head. Like, oh, yeah. that's just horrific. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was brought up by Mason. Mason, um, right. Calling out Midsummer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so next we have Jason. Wait, hold on. No, yeah, okay. Sorry. Uh, Next, we have uh, Jason Maltby. Number three, you're like a broken record. The only record I'm going to break is the amount of dick in your mouth record. <laughs> Dieter von Kunth is a mullet-trimming industrialist <laughs> with shears as big as his will to hate barbarology. See, I could, I could tell good writing the moment I hear the dialogue, Dingus. Go on. After capturing MacGruber... And Edward Scissorhandsing his cam his Camaro crash helmet, von Kunt prances around with his stolen locks like a dog who just found something good in the trash. But Gruber screams at him like a baby velociraptor, and proceeds to get all devil nasty as Mister Jesus on the bad guys. He welcomes the two men, holding him down to Throat Rip City, and does a backflip. Then Kuth does his best impression of ancient Rome and gets ruined as MacGruber executes a quintuple spinning back fist on the man who delilahed his due. Luckily, 
the groups leaves plenty of time to disarm the warhead, prevent total nuclear disaster, and fashion an engagement ring out of some copper wire and a ball bearing. This is You're like getting Kelly. It's like getting Kelly to read anime. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I realized that was happening too late. Dingus, just uh, watch MacGruber a few more times. You will eventually understand its genius. I promise. It'll happen. I almost think it's as funny just listening to Dingus just read all that through clenched teeth. <laughs> I just think about celery when I think about that movie. Oh. They did that right? Tired, Jason's point. number two is Peter O'Toole loses his bonkers in the ruling class and becomes a demented misogynist deeply disgusted by women and any sexual gesture or expression of romantic affection from the opposite sex. However, he suppresses all this in public because he believes he is Jack the Ripper, wanted by the authorities. After his uncle's mistress Grace plants a wet one on him, he composedly sends her out of the room. Now alone, he wipes the kiss off his lips and delivers a veritable Jerry Bruckheimer slash Michael Bay double funeral of a scream. It starts out like the purr of tires redistributing gravel and slowly crescendos into a gurgling, guttural jet engine shriek of revulsion. They probably should have let him continue thinking he was Jesus. Uh, Jason M's number one, most of Annihilation is about as, as exciting as trying not to fall asleep in church. Oh, but good. Uh, okay. yeah. Leaves a mark. I like Anya, where Jason is going with this. Go ahead, Dixon. Anya ties up her squad mates yes. and holds them at gunpoint. Yes. But gets distracted by cries for help from coming, uh, coming from outside. Right. It sounds like her friend Cass believed mutilated the night before. Huh. As the wheezing screams come nearer, we see its source, a chunky skeletal freak bear whose vocal mannerisms mimic the voice of its victims. This genetic beast pig's roar is distorted with the anguished wails of a woman we know is dead, screaming, help me, over and over, replicating the last thing the victim had said, and letting the audience hear her final moments in so much pain. The bear then proceeds to chow down on Anya's head until it is basically some shoulders and hamburger. <laughs> Thanks for all the hard work, guys. Jason M. Jason, those are those are great. Man, that I've got I love that bear scene so much and I wish it was in a movie I liked. Uh, uh, read the books, brah. I have. I'm the one that told you to read them, didn't I? Well, what? I read them and then you read the first one and then Googled what happened. Alright, I forgot. I didn't read the last two. Okay, right. I did read the first and one. You though. turn that into I told you to read those. <laughs> well, I, I just know that I read uh the first one without prompting from you. Just because I the knew it was second one's awesome. You screwed yourself on that. Alright, fair enough. The, the the corporate the thing, the institute. And the guy works there. Oh, well, Kelly Wand, at least we'll always have Freak Bear. Aw. <laughs> Freak Bear. <laughs> Oscar Isaac, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, we have Arthur Jum and Jelly. Number three, Jaws 2. Oh. <laughs> Those are words that have never been three. spoken in a 3x3 three three before. What? Yeah. After a helicopter tries to rescue some teens who are being hounded by the second Jaws. Oh, no, I like this one. The younger Brody child is knocked into the water with the shark nearby. 
a girl named Marge heroically jumps in the water to rescue him and manages to help the child onto a capsized boat. She is not so lucky herself, however, and can't get onto the boat in time to avoid the jaws of the predator. Her scream as she's being consumed oh. is pretty memorable since she is basically crying with fear and panic as she is pulled under. For a bad movie, this death scene and accompanying scream is actually decent, but of course, it is sandwiched in between the lunacy of a shark destroying a helicopter and the ridiculousness of another teenage girl screaming her lungs out. That that so I thought he was talking about a different one. I don't remember that one, but I remember there's a shot of just like a, one of the girls in a, a like a super hot girl too in the the sailboat, just like screaming and being afraid of something. And I remember seeing a. a stills from the set of Jaws 2 when I was a kid and seeing how close the camera was to the actress's face in that scene and, and just being completely taken aback like wait a minute how could how could you act with like a big old camera like literally a few inches from your face uh, and just being surprised about that so I thought mm. that's the scream he was talking about he's surprised by the camera well that's the thing she has to pretend that big old camera's a shark it's not easy, easy to do I Kelly mean, Wand what? They look like sharks. Do you know who I'm talking about, though? Like the super hot chick yeah. from Jaws 2? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I remember all of them. And Jaws 3 has some good ones, too. Yeah, I think that the super hot one in Jaws 2, like, that's that's that's, that's the pinnacle of, of Jaws ladies. Then they go, oh, let's wrap it all up with the hottest one of all, Lorraine Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, slave. <laughs> Uh, Arthur's number two is a movie called Jurassic Park. Mm. After the cowardly lawyer has been discovered in the bathroom by the T-Rex, he is eaten by the beast. The man screams like crazy when he is in the dinosaur's mouth, and that really freaked me out when I was a child. The idea that the initial bite didn't instantly kill him Ooh. was horrifying to me because it implied that he could feel himself being eaten. He eventually stops screaming when the T-Rex whips him side to side, presumably snapping his spine. But those first screams stuck with me for a long time. He also uh, just finished shitting, didn't he? Or was no, that? he was just oh. hiding. His pants were up. Okay. Or his, or his sh khaki <laughs> shorts. I thought he was shitting with terror and the dinosaur ate his sh I, I can't. I can't speak to that. <laughs> I didn't watch the movie in smell vision <laughs> Arthur, Arthur's number one, Jaws. After Jaws lands on the no. deck of the orca. Yeah, Jaws the shark. We all know who Jaws the shark is. Doesn't have a name. Bruce played Jaws. Yeah. Uh, Quint or Quentin, to those in the know, <laughs> slides down the sinking vessel towards his doom. After Jaws bites him, we are treated to the sounds of crunching bones and Robert Shaw screaming his head off. The sight of this fearsome shark hunter, terrified and screaming with pain, is something I will never forget and an image that made me afraid to swim for several years. Quint keeps screaming and thrashing until Jaws chomps down for a second time and his lifeless corpse is pulled into the ocean. It is like right after he gave the Indianapolis speech about how much it sucked and he's like, ah, I survived that. And then the next morning he gets fucking Indianapolis. So it is kind of a sad scream. Gosh, well, it sounds almost ironic, Kelly Wand. 
What I love about it is that it it actually makes what Rhiannon said true. Uh, because my parents took me to see Jaws in a theater, but my dad kept covering my eyes during parts oh. like this. And I remember in particular him covering my eyes during this moment. And here I could still hear everything that was going on, which right. just made my imagination fill in the blanks. And I asked the neighborhood kids who'd also actually seen the movie to tell me what happened. And they're like, yeah, well, the, sh- the shark bites him and then blood starts squirting out of his mouth. Uh, but that's not what I heard. I heard crunching bones and screams. By the uh, same token, the night before, Jaws, the shark, was probably listening to Quinn tell the Indianapolis story, and he was making him hungry. So he's like, oh, man, I can't wait to eat that fucker tomorrow. Oh, I can't believe I missed that buffet. Yeah, that sounds delicious, dude. Super. Uh, next we have Nick. Since the camera spinning above him while George yells con is more of a yell than a scream, believe me, Nick, I would have tried to get away with that. Uh, even, But I, I would have had to do a, a self-arrest, as they say. Uh, it's more of a yell than a scream. I can't pick that. But I did try to challenge myself to come with, with screams from only dudes. Here are my picks. Number three, The Godfather. If you woke up covered in blood... With your favorite horse's head in your bed, what would you do? Uh, number two, Nick's choice is the Silence of the Lambs. After Buffalo Bill orders Catherine Martin to put the lotion on its skin, he lowers a basket down for her to give the bottle back. By the light of the basket, she sees bloody claw marks on the side of the wall and loses it. After listening to her scream, Buffalo Bill screams too, cruelly and insanely mimicking her. It's pretty chilling. I agree, Nick. And Nick's number one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When they open the Well of Souls and Sala sees the scary statue and goes, Go! Sorry, Indy. Does that count as a scream? Didn't think so. So that's not my pick. My actual pick is when the Nazis open the Ark and the three main bad guys are confronted with lightning fire, fire, lightning fire, power of God or something. They each get a great scream. Belloc gets sort of a screech. The Nazi general gets a kind of moan. But the best scream and my favorite is given by Tot, the Nazi torturer. He also gets the best death when his face melts off. Cheers, Nick. Mm. That is a good screen. Finally, we have one of our favorite listeners, someone who hasn't written in in a while, and I'm so pleased to see his name. About time. Uh, This would be Chris Markinson. Hey, guys. I'll leave Tony Collette screaming about her son, leaving a mess in the backseat of her car to someone else. Here are three other screams that I like. Number three, in High Rise, Sienna Miller gets dragged from the living room by Lucas to be assaulted. As she's being dragged, she starts crying and screaming. It's a chilling scene made even more powerful after you watch the aftermath when you see her bruised face as she serves Evan's dog food and he eats it in front of her. Well, it's no field in England. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Chris chooses for number two in Wild. Reese Witherspoon has the wrong size of boots on. She takes off the boots. And her socks to see her foot is covered uh, in blood. Her, her foot is covered in blood. She pulls the nail off her big toe 
and lets out a yell and knocks over her backpack, which then knocks one of her boots down the mountain which she was on. She screams a profanity and tosses her other boot down the mountain and then lets out an even louder scream. And Chris is number one in The Handmaiden. I think it's just called Handmaiden, but I'm not sure. I don't, I don't remember. That can't which. be right. There is a point in the movie where Lady Hideko tries to hang herself only be, to be saved by Suki. The two women talk, and there is a revelation which causes Suki to let go of Lady Hideko and lets fra- fly with a profanity and a scream, which still makes me laugh even when I watched it this evening. I uh, also watched other parts of the movie as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys, Chris. All right, that's all the listeners we have who have written in about screams. Do you guys have any runner-ups? I do not. I picked my three favorite. Kelly Wand, you said you had some... uh, You had to substitute... I was stuck around the Sutherland, but then I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, guess I, any... I had a couple. I'll be quick about it. I, I think this is more of a yell than a scream, but there's this moment in John Wick where he's grieving, and this is right after he's he he's confronted for the first time by the Russian mobsters, and Theo says to him, or he says in Russian to the dog, everything's got its price, bitch. And uh, and Keanu Reeves says back to him in Russian, not this bitch. And then he goes out to the airport. The guy lets him in, and he just drives that beautiful Mustang on the tarmac like crazy and in a self-destructive way, eventually heading straight toward these three massive dumpster trucks or front hose or whatever you call them, um, where he could kill himself if he if he doesn't stop and he just lets out this this scream of grief and desire to end it all basically uh, as he slams on the brakes and stops just in the nick of time um and then there's there's a great scream in lethal weapon actually uh and i'm not talking about the the stuff that mill gibson does with the battery and endo but rather what danny glover's character is going through when he's getting tortured or interrogated um, so that they can find out what he knows and he's got a, a wound in his in his upper bicep a bullet wound and they've been working him over pretty bad and the guy I think it's Mr. Joshua uh, cups his hand and pours some salt into it and he picks it up and he pushes the salt slowly into the wound. And, of course, rubbing salt in a wound is a well-known saying. But the way Danny Glover tilts back his head and just his mouth goes wide and he just screams at the amount of pain. Um, and he's just he's sweating and he's drooling and he's spitting and he's so angry and helpless um, that I would choose that scream much more over any of his grief about his daughter's uh, uh, body being threatened later by the henchman. Uh, so that's all I've got. All right. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, tenant. the tenant has a good scream, too. Roman Polanski. I've okay. never, never seen that. Oh, what? I probably should. I don't think so, I've seen it. What's it about? A tenant? Uh, 
Yeah, so just, just Polanski. Just... That's not Polanski. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Polanski. Polanski. Yeah, directing Polanski on it. It's uh, probably what got him Sharon Tate. If you watch the movie, it's, it's very. All right, good. so there's a good scream in that. I'll, I'll look out for that one. Other runners up, Kelly Wand? No, sorry. All right, you guys have a month, and by you guys I mean you two and the listeners, to think of your favorite reunions in a movie. This is where characters uh, reconnect after a notable absence. I want your favorite reunions. Send those to 3x3 at quarter2x3.com. Uh, get those to us by, oh, by the next year. Uh, let's see, by December 29th, uh, midnight Pacific. Uh, and Question. we're going to... Yes. Does it have to be an American reunion? Um, I will answer that question, Kelly Wand, if you really don't know the answer. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do. Sorry, what was the question? Oh, Just favorite reunions. Uh, okay, yeah. That was so, not a question. Tom was giving uh, you an answer. Yeah. Uh, so send those to 3x3 at quarter2x3.com. Also, go see Knives Out. You maybe already have. Let us know what you thought by sending uh, your comments to 3x3 at quarter2x3.com before December 8th, midnight Pacific, uh, yeah. and we'll include your comments on the air. Also, we'd like to start posting you guys emails in the corresponding forum thread for these podcasts so if you send something in and you don't want it i mean we'll still read it on the air we'll still talk about stuff you say but if you don't want your stuff then later posted on the podcast thread please let us know because we'll we'll certainly respect that so so dovetailing on that i i did email a couple of people back to say hey is that okay if i do this uh most of them were quite amenable but they were clear about well i don't want you to give this information out about me or that information out about me so i i'm fairly careful about this but sometimes i slip up um if you don't want your last name read out loud or or talked about out loud during the podcast uh and it appears in your email header that's fine I'll go with whatever you do as your sign-off at the end of the email. So if you just want your first name, then I'll – and you just put that cheers, Brian, or whatever. Uh, if you don't mind us saying your whole name like Sam Vitovich does, then put your whole name. But I'll go with whatever you want. Also, if you include your social security number, we will read it over the air, so don't do that either. Exactly, yeah. All right, I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian McCloskey. It's Christian Morosky. Oh, so close. And Kelly Wand. I put the button on myself and scream at the predator and it scares him away. One, two, three, not only you and me. Got 180 degrees when I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three, feet apart, man. Then he laughs at me. Tom, I mean, Dingus, there's a really good uh, Star Wars TV series on uh, Disney+. Plus. It's called The Midichlorian. You might want to check it out. It's really good. Ah!